Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. While the world is all gloomy and full of despair... One thing that might help you is comfy loungewear But I mean it won't help with a war or you know a raging disease But it will help you sit on your bottom with enjoyment and ease Ooh, British boxers, they sell lovely pants and pajamas Ooh, British boxers, which might help you deal with global dramas British boxes, they are a really nice sort. So go check their range from t shirts to boxer shorts. British Boxers are a very ethically lovely loungewear and underwear company who just the other week went viral on Twitter for posting swears about Nigel Farage. So what more could you want? And with the code PARPOLBRO15, you get 15% off any order what you do on their site at British-Boxers.com. So don't just forget that while everything out there seems quite mad That some things might be pants and yet also not bad Oh, British boxers British boxers don't sell boxers So please don't try to buy any of your favourite boxing legends from their website Or they will ignore your email Barry McGuigan is not for purchase And we please stop contacting them to ask And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that every time it loses listeners, acts all prime ministerial and insists it's just proof that they absolutely love what I'm doing. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week as Russian president and star of 2015 animation Bird Boy the Forgotten Children, go on, look it up, go on, Vladimir Putin blames West for the war in Ukraine, I can't believe just how much Kanye still riles people up. Yes, Putin has all the youngest sibling energy, as he said him attacking Ukraine is actually their fault because they didn't want to play with him. Putin made a big speech on Victory Day, a national holiday commemorating the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazi Germany, something they seem to be commemorating this year by continuing an illegal invasion of Ukraine. It's like celebrating the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic by dressing as a giant iceberg and ramming yourself into ships. 
The war has been devastating for Ukraine, but Russia have also lost thousands of soldiers and failed to really secure any victories at all, so Putin had to find a way to justify the ongoing attacks with his people, somehow. And he went with, well, they started it in the first place. If you're wondering how they started it, it was by apparently asking NATO for security help, which if that's true, means that it's time to get rid of your burglar alarm and buildings should fire their security, as frankly, you're all just asking to get broken into. It was a far cry from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, a man with the constant appearance of a lead singer of a band you like 20 years ago, announcing a comeback tour no one asked for, who in his Victory Day speech accused Russia of implementing a bloody reconstruction of Nazism, which is a bit harsh because at least the Nazis were organised. The last two and a half months have been horrific for the people of Ukraine and Zelensky told them that they won in World War II and they will win again, which is a sort of empowering speech that he's really very good at. And then he ruined it by having Bono and The Edge from U2 do a special show in one of Kiev's subways turned bomb shelter and you think, haven't his people suffered enough? Though I suppose if they survive that performance, whatever Russia brings next will seem easy. It shouldn't be a surprise that a leader like Putin thinks every consequence of his actions is actually someone else's fault, because that's totally on brand for leading parties in 2022 and all the rage amongst them. I mean, here in Blighty, after the local elections where Conservatives lost almost 500 seats, it was of course anyone's fault but their own that voters went elsewhere. A defeated Tory councillor in Wandsworth blamed losing their seat on the increase of young left-wing voters in the borough because no one ruins votes like people with the right to vote using their vote. Total arseholes. I mean, what next? Members of the public wanting access to public services or something bonkers like that? Someone needs to step in before it goes too far. The Prime Minister and only burlap sack that's bad for the planet, Boris Johnson, insisted that the lesson voters had given them was that they had to keep delivering their agenda, and he didn't once mention any of the usual needing to listen to voters rubbish, as if to say it's actually everyone's fault for not voting for them and they're going to keep doing what they want anyway. It's this way of thinking that makes me wonder if Johnson does indeed love his kids, and hence why he avoids them and wants nothing to do with them, as he thinks that's clearly the best way to show it. Or maybe the fact that he can't hear rejection, but still carries on anyway, is why he's got so many kids in the first place. Johnson is still in his position after losing all those seats, which is double standards, as for anyone else in the country, it would definitely mean they lost their job at IKEA. But it must be that the Prime Minister's party really think they aren't to blame. I mean, they can't fathom that voters would want to vote for another party after the cost of living crisis, the recession we're now plummeting into, endlessly botched Brexit or Partygate or... Boris Johnson's interview on Good Morning Britain last week where he didn't know who national treasure Lorraine Kelly was, which has to show just how out of touch he is when most people in Britain have her existence burned into their minds from birth, and I'm certain she's at least five answers on the citizenship test. Then again, maybe Johnson just understood Lorraine Kelly's true talent, because who does know who Lorraine Kelly really is when we're never sure if it's Lorraine Kelly or Lorraine Kelly, the actor who plays Lorraine Kelly, that we're actually seeing. The interview with Susanna Reid also included the incredible moment where she told Johnson about a 77-year-old pensioner who uses her free bus pass to ride the bus just to stay warm. And he countered with how, as mayor, he'd introduced the 24-hour freedom bus pass in London. Is it a sociopathic lack of empathy, or is it just proof that the PM's love for buses is so real that he sees that as actually the ideal way for someone to spend a lifetime? I'm sure there's a big part of him that would give anything to leave the stresses of number 10 and instead spend hours and hours on the top deck of a 210, staring out of the window as he fumbles with himself while thinking about Churchill. I can't imagine why that didn't convince voters, the idea that the Prime Minister is the sort of person who'd remove a dam so your home got flooded, but then boast he'd lent you the plastic bags you're wearing on your feet, as though that'll make up for all your belongings becoming seafaring. 
Actually, though, as you'll be unsurprised to hear, Johnson didn't actually introduce the Freedom Pass. He just changed it so it applied for 24 hours a day, meaning pensioners whose homes are too cold can now sleep on the bus for free as well. A true hero of our times. He wouldn't have lent you those plastic bags. He'd have nicked them from the bins. Five days after that interview, the party trotted out the excuse that Johnson had actually had food poisoning and was sick on his suit just before Susanna Reid talked to him, which is really funny because I didn't think it was called food poisoning if it was from booze. Perhaps being sick on himself was just the Prime Minister's suggestion for keeping warm or getting the most out of your food if you're struggling with money. It'd be another of the Conservatives' top tips to add to Environmental Minister and man who looks like he's just about to morph into a small dog, George Eustace's ideas that families should buy own value brands rather than own branded products, which is a really great idea. Which value brand energy companies are there again, George? I don't remember seeing a gas essentials range, but maybe I missed that. What about a rent basics? No? Ah, well, that's a shame. And yet he convinced many Conservative councillors running in the local elections to try that trick, thinking that if they just put local in front of their name and didn't at all mention the Prime Minister, then maybe people would forget the National Conservative troubles and just think that they were a brand with some actual value. You know, local Conservatives for local corruption. Local Conservatives for when you really want someone to focus on just ruining your area. And it didn't work. What's your favourite murder story? Because mine now is last week's local elections, where it was stated if the Conservatives lost 200 seats it would be a disaster, but instead, like they always do, they managed to take a disaster and then somehow fuck it up even worse. Though luckily the only victims this time of their magical ability to see a shit-covered fan and turn it on in a room full of other fans is themselves. In England, they lost 338 council seats, and they lost many councils in areas that you could only previously describe as one of those places so Tory that everyone uses next door to complain about suspicious people lurking in the area, even if they are collecting the bins. Oh, uh, but they did well in the Red Wall, if you consider the Red Wall to actually just be a bit of brick masonry somewhere in Croydon and not the north of England, where they didn't do very well at all. The main winners of the local elections were the Lib Dems, which is going to worry everyone as it means there's even more chance they'll do some sort of awful victory stunt soon where leader and gurning mole Ed Davey will dress as Godzilla and stomp on a building saying Tories and shout that's levelling the country and all of us will cringe so hard that we turn inside out. The other big winners were the Green Party who had the highest vote share increase of all the parties as voters thought best than to let other parties pollute their council. And Labour did, well, okay-ish. Especially in London, where it took Barnet, Wandsworth and Westminster, which has been Tory since its creation in 1964. So that's going to be really hilarious when the Conservative Party deny it funding like they have done all the Labour councils, and then they find they can't get to the House of Commons due to massive sinkholes. But really, considering Labour are up against the worst of all people, who are now, as revealed last week, knocking the country into a recession, Labour only did fine. Nowhere near as well as the last election for these seats in 2018, and only 35% share of the vote, which were at the same in a general election would mean they'd pit being the biggest party, but not with a majority. They did as well as Labour did in local elections in 2014 under political millhouse Ed Miliband, who, as you know, then went on to do very, very well. I mean, in podcasts, that is, but not really in the election whatsoever. Of course, as political pundits will tell you, local elections are a very different beast than general elections, but then they'll also tell you in exactly the same breath what this local election means for the next general election, and they'll do that every single time. In some instances, this time around, people voted for local reasons, or for specific councillors they like, or would turn out lower than 30% in many areas, not wanting to vote at all, because what's the point when all your options are just different degrees of how shit you want your life to be? You have to ask why Labour is still less appealing to many than a party led by a man who was sick on his own suit before an interview, and then still wore that suit to the interview. 
Well, it's probably a lack of vision, a lack of campaigning and canvassing, as mentioned by many voters, because for a party with the name Labour, they really don't want to put any work in. And, of course, a leader like Keir Starmer, who creates all the public enthusiasm of a notice board outside a park. Yet, while there are many reasons to think he's absolutely not the man to become Prime Minister, unless we want our main export to be fence-sitting, one of the reasons to not not like Starmer is the current furor over what's being known as Beergate, when in April 2021 he was pictured having a beer and a takeaway curry with workers in a Labour Party office in Durham. Yes, I too am disappointed with yet again the lack of imagination of the press, as I definitely would have called it Chapati Gate. This was during the bit of lockdown that wasn't lockdown and when pubs were open, but you still couldn't see friends and really no one gave a shit that Starmer ate what was almost certainly a very, very mild spice-free korma and Durham police originally said they found nothing to investigate. Though that could just be proof that they aren't very good at finding things, like when former special advisor with his forehead like an anvil, Dominic Cummings, was in their turf during lockdown and they couldn't find anything then even though he drove down the road with his eyes closed. But pressure from the Conservatives and the press means that Durham police are investigating again because, as you know, they are politically impartial. There's new evidence of a memo that shows having food was pre-arranged as part of work, which was allowed, and also says social distancing was required while eating. And I have a feeling that all of Starmer's memos outside of lockdown say exactly the same thing. The issue is, if the Labour leader broke the rules at the time, then the Conservatives say he's a hypocrite after all his criticism of the times that the Prime Minister and pals had massive parties getting fucked on all the booze, which apparently is exactly the same as having a beer and curry at work. And it is the same, because I reckon most people would have as little fun at a party with the Conservatives as they would having a curry with Starmer. Both feel like really awful shit ways to spend an evening. And they're also both the same as they were all work events, right? I mean, apparently at the event known as the ABBA party at the number 10 flat, Boris Johnson says he did carry out a job interview, so maybe he was working. What position was he interviewing for exactly? Dancing Queen? Government Super Trooper? Very hard to tell. But once again, we're in a stupid place where the leader of the Labour Party is being accused of horrendous hypocrisy and rule-breaking for doing something the police have already investigated once and said he didn't do, while the Conservatives are still where they are despite 4 billion illegal parties and losing all the seats. Has Starmer lied about breaking the lockdown rules? I mean, it's unlikely as he only lies about the policies he'd run on to become Labour leader. Keir Starmer made a big announcement that he promises to resign as party leader if he's found to have broken the rules. And there's a lot of optimism that that will force Boris Johnson to reciprocate and also resign. <laughs> no, it won't. The only rule that the Conservatives follow is one that says lie, cheat and steal to rule. And if Starmer resigns, we'll just be subject to years and years of Labour being the party of rule-breaking resigners and hypocrites, while the government rush through legislation that means it's illegal to resign unless your initials are K and S. According to a poll, 74% of the British public have heard about Partygate, but only 41% have heard about Beergate, meaning it's really not cutting through. 20% though claim to have heard about Hikegate, which is a made-up scandal involving Ed Davey, which, knowing the Lib Dems, involved him trying to pop a balloon that said Westminster Bubble on it and three passers-by telling him to go take one. So what on earth is going to make Boris Johnson leave? Maybe the State of the Union, although if you can call it that when it's really not so much of a union anymore, all the countries are kind of doing their own thing and wishing they could see other people. There are no more blue councils in either Scotland or Wales, well, apart from the ones in the Highlands or the northwest of Wales, where it gets very cold in winter, but that is, that is different. In Northern Ireland, the political ground has changed dramatically as Sinn Féin gained the majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly for the first time since it was formed in 101 years, meaning the DUP are now in second and they'll just have to understand that that's what God wanted. 
This should mean that First Minister is now Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, aka Bridget Jones' The Edge of Razan. Except the First Minister can't be in place till the second party, this time the ever-difficult DUP, representatives of all the villains in Dan Brown's books, agree to it and put forward a deputy leader. One can't hold office without the other under the power-sharing agreement, and the DUP haven't yet said if they'll do this because they have to wait for a sign from God or something, which to them is probably hearing about a gay couple divorcing or something like that. Actually, they said they won't nominate leaders until the British government take decisive action on the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, the one the British government put in place but don't like and can't work out where it came from, and the one the Brexit-supporting DUP think is the worst thing ever. Though Northern Ireland currently has better business growth and lower inflation than the rest of the UK because of it. Maybe that's why the DUP are sad, though, because for Northern Ireland to be properly aligned with the rest of the UK, they've got to be having as shit a time as everyone in England, Wales and Scotland. Northern Ireland Secretary and upside-down paintbrush Brandon Lewis said the parties must form an executive by themselves and the government would address issues with the protocol soon. But if they scrap it, it'll be trade war with the EU type. Still, I suppose that is one way to make sure we can all cope with the price rises just by making sure there's absolutely nothing on shelves for us to buy. The Alliance Party won 17 seats in Northern Ireland and they are now in third place, which is great and going to be really fun for them sitting in the middle of the assembly just wishing everyone would get along. I feel like much of their time will just be standing up and saying, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, before insisting everyone has quiet time and really thinks about what they've done. The Queen is going to prove she's still alive, or at least how good the Royal Puppeteers are, as she opens Parliament on Tuesday with her speech full of all the worst bills ever except Cosby. It'll probably also be full of platitudes about how hard it is to deal with the cost of living crises, as now we all have to pay for even more of her heating bill so her pedo son doesn't try to warm himself up on other people again. The Bill of Rights is expected to be included because nothing says democracy like a super rich lady on a gold throne she inherited telling us we're going to have our basic rights threatened. There'll be the Brexit Freedom Bills too, which will contain the removal of more EU regulations, which will allow things like gene editing, which is great news for denim lovers, and the Schools Bill that will work for every child, parent and family, which is weird as families don't go to school, though I guess if we all got free lunches it might help with the cost of living. Johnson says it will deliver on the promise of Brexit, so I can't wait finally this year for that £350 million for the NHS. In other news, the Food Standards Agency has scrapped a rule on radioactivity levels in produce, meaning that Japan can now sell fish and vegetables to Britain from near the site of the Fukushima nuclear plant. More proof of this country being a global superpower, I reckon, just, you know, like the Hulk or mutants. On the plus side, I guess glowing in the dark will help us save on electricity bills in the winter. The UK is now officially facing a recession, with inflation likely rising above 10% later in the year, which is bad news for everyone except balloons. Secretary of State for Housing and last item at the Fishmongers, Michael Gove, has said the cost of living will make levelling up even tougher now, which is impressive levels of imagination, as I just can't work out how you make something that doesn't exist actually more difficult. The government's key plans to reduce regional inequalities are being impacted, which must be why, I guess, they're trying to make sure everyone all over the country is equally fucked. Greetings, Parpol Broads. How goes you on this actually five-day week? I mean, I know everyone loves a bank holiday, and I know everyone says this as well, but just spread about a bit, eh? We really need one in October for everyone to sleep through, but last week's plus the Easter one plus the Jubilee one for celebrating just how long someone sponged off the state. No, it's too much in one go, and I'm running out of affordable places to take my daughter to when there's no nursery. Or we have to go the other way, just have a four-day week every week, and then we'll be so used to it within a year, it won't really matter. Or just, you know, no days in a week, just all like... 
one long weekend and we give everyone loads of money and we can all go on holiday forever. That's, that's probably why I'm not in politics, right? They'd ask me to cost that and I, I wouldn't have a clue. I did decide last week that my policy for the economy shrinking would be that we all shrink with it uh, using a special ray gun or something like that. And then everything would be cheaper because we wouldn't need fuel. We could ride on bees. Uh, one pea could feed a family. One match could heat a home. I mean, dangerously, obviously, but homes would probably be cheaper as they'd be made of cards so you could get another one. Or if you're rich, uh, you could have a house of Lego, which would be quite uncomfortable to sit on. Anyway, this is my solution for all of us to get small. Vote get small. Who's in? Everyone, if we were all shrunk, because we'd all fit. How did the local elections go for you? Uh, my council went from Tory to Labour, which is actually great, even though I'm not yet sure if I should be excited or if it just mean all our local public buildings are now going to be sold off to different contractors instead. Still, change as good as a rest and all of that jazz. Um, I haven't dared look, but my wife checks next door, uh, the website next door. She doesn't sort of wander around the neighbour's house. That would be illegal. She checks that website next door, and I don't look at it because it's scary. But apparently ours is full of people furious that it's now a Labour area and dreading uh, low traffic networks and, you know, less people dying on the roads because they love a bit of that round here they all drive four by fours and they ignore zebra crossings so i guess they'd be livid if someone stopped them having their weekly knocking over of school kids why do other parties insist on stamping down on people's hobbies like that Ugh, hey awful um no it's not a definitive bit of hope but my watching the tories losses stack up definitely cheered me up quite a bit more of that please i will have a lot more of that thank you uh, I've been spending today, uh, I don't know why I'm telling this, but I'm, I'm trying to not look at bits of Twitter as a tweet of mine went viral. I know that's a boast, isn't it? It's a bit of a humble brag. Um, but really, things going viral, I, you know, viral was not a good term before social media, and I still think it's not a good term, as generally it just means uh, you get a lot of people trying to make you feel awful. A lot like germs. Um, I tweeted about the new Doctor Who, who's going to be the brilliant Shooty Gatwa, um, uh, who I think's brilliant. And uh, I put that it would irritate the Home Office that a Rwandan man will be able to travel where he liked through time and space, and Pretty Patel wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And a lot of people like that tweet. Um, I also got loads of accusations of racism because he's British, which I know. I googled it, but he was born in Rwanda, which means the Home Office, who are racist, would probably still try to remove his citizenship under the new Nationality and Borders Bill if they wanted to, if he didn't have uh, dual citizenship. I think he's half Rwanda half Scottish, so he'd probably be alright. Um, but, you know, all those affected by the Windrush scandal horrors were British too. All the people shoved onto the Jamaica 50 flights, also British. Um, but, you know, this sort of nuance about it being a criticism of the Home Office was too much, so apparently I'm racist for saying the Home Office is. Uh, also, you know, there were lots of people going, um, they're sending people to Rwanda, it's not people from Rwanda coming here. It's, yeah, I know, but it, it, sometimes you have to write jokes with terms that people understand. And then I also got called misogynistic for picking on Pretty Patel. One person said, no, she wouldn't do that because he's British and the Home Office are only against illegal immigrants like I am as they steal all of the jobs, you racist. I mean, where to even begin with that? It's incredible, isn't it? I'm pretty sure if there is a Venn diagram of people who are racist, people who complain about cancel culture and people who complain about jokes they don't like that should be cancelled, I reckon that's just one big circle. Anyway, I muted and ran and was reminded why it's much better to put jokes on there that absolutely no one likes and then just generally hide in obscurity. Far, far safer. Uh, I don't know why I told you all that. It's just in my brain. Um, thank you all for listening to my weekly Twitter and politics gripes. And big thanks this week to Joe and Kat for upping their Patreon donation, uh, to Freya, uh, Kofi supporter, and Dave S for the Kofi donations, all of which are so damn appreciated at the moment. Um, and if you fancy supporting the podcast, and by podcast, I mean me, during the cost of living crisis and the, oh God, live comedy is dying crisis, then please throw your cash, even £1 a month, at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro for absolute zero extras. Uh, but hey, there is too much to watch and listen to already, right? So I am doing you a favour by not giving you any more. Uh, or you can do a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. 
Uh, and there's not much else to say this week, except uh, my usual warning of I've got no guests lined up for next week yet, but I may embrace that and do a Queen's Speech Explainer if you want that, or even if you don't want that. Uh, yeah, OK, I'll try and get a guest. I'll try. Yeesh. Right, now have this. Did you do a vote last week? Uh, I don't want to boast, but I did one, and it was great. I went to our local polling station, which was in a church this time. It has a cafe that I've always wanted to look at, but I don't really go to church, so I didn't get to look at it, and I got to this time, but they didn't have any cakes because there was voting, so that sort of ruined it. Uh, then I showed my card, they found my name, and they asked me what it was, and then I said it, and then they said it wrong, and then I took a bit of paper to a small booth and used a small pencil to put a cross by my name, which felt a bit inconsiderate in a church. And then I put my bit of paper in a box and the pencil in a tray that said used pencils, and I hope they're recycled, as they are full of things that can be drawn from them. Ah, I like voting, not just because it means I can sneak a peek at cafes I wouldn't normally get to see, but also because it's an important part of our flawed democracy that we get to vote for who we believe in. Well, not really, as Odin the Allfather wasn't on the ballot paper, and frankly I didn't believe in who I voted for, I just went for the ones who are shit but might get rid of the shitter ones. And it is a flawed democracy here in Britain. We have a whole bunch of unelected peers who get to have a say on laws because their dads did, or they donated enough money to the Conservative Party. First past the post system means different vote shares mean different things in different places, and we've been stuck with a two-party system for years, apart from Boris Johnson, who usually attends way more than that, especially during lockdowns. Then there's a need to opt in to vote, the fact that it's always on a Thursday when people have to work, and the lack of a none of the above, or better, OK, OK, I'll do it then, box. But it's not the worst, and yet changes that kicked into play with the elections bill just before the end of the last parliamentary term a week or so ago could actually lob it further towards that title. If you voted on Thursday, that'll be the last time you get to do so without voter ID. And if you don't have the right kind, that's the last time you're going to get to vote. On the polling station I went to, it had a big warning about pretending to be someone else and how that was illegal, but more fool them, because as I crossed the box, in my head I was Captain Smallbeard, Terror of the Low Seas, and there is nothing they could do about it. Part of the bill also removed the independence of the Electoral Commission, so it'll now be up to the government to decide if the government has breached electoral law. In the same way, they made very sensible decisions about Johnson's flat decorations, Rishi's wife never paying tax, or all of those parties. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. And anyway, who needs votes when chances are, even if the Conservatives lost every single seat in a general election, Johnson would just announce that's the public's way of telling him to scrap voting and just make him the Emperor of England. This week I spoke to Jess Garland, the Director of Policy and Research at the Electoral Reform Society. The ERS, if you don't know them, and you should, are an organisation that campaigned for your democratic rights and have been working hard to oppose the elections bill, or at least get changes made to it for the better. But sadly and unsurprisingly, the government paid little attention to any sensible requests, as I think the only way they do that is if you donate a lot to the party first. Jess was on this podcast way back in 2019 and it was great to get her on the show again to ask her just what the elections bill could mean for voting in Britain in future. And if the next time we go to a polling station, the ballot paper will just have Boris Johnson's name on it and a small print warning what will happen if you don't cross the box. Here is Jess. Jess, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I think you're on uh, a little while ago um, now and... Lots has changed, including a whole load of bills that were passed just before the end of the parliamentary term last week, uh, none of which I'm particularly enthused about. But uh, let's discuss the elections bill, which, as it said, uh, its aim was making elections remain secure, fair, modern, inclusive and transparent. Is it set to do any of those things at all? Well, that's a whole load of words right there. And I think, <laughs> um, gosh, where to start? Well, let's start with secure, because that's clearly where the government's focus has been. And, and that is why they have introduced in, in this bill um, voter ID so that 
all of us next time we go and vote um, in a general election will have to take um, a form of ID. Um, and the government's been hugely focused on, on this issue, but we actually know that, let's take 2019, we had a general election and European elections. There was one conviction and one caution for personation, which is the, the type of fraud that the government are, are really concerned about. So, so clearly we're not looking at a, um, an epidemic of, uh, of personation fraud, fraud going on, and yet the government feel, feel that that is um, severe enough to, to introduce voter ID. So that's the secure part of it. So, so sure, um, at the next election, when we're all asked to pre present this um, photographic ID, you could argue that it's going to be more secure. But what what's sacrificed to do that is some of those other some of those other phrases. So, is it going to be fair? Probably not. We know about two point one million people don't have the types of ID that the government's asking them for. Um, is it more inclusive? Definitely not. Um, we know that people who are less likely to have these forms of ID are people on low incomes, it's people with disabilities, it's older voters, it's younger voters, it's a whole group across society who are less likely to, to be able to present those forms of ID. So, so you know, uh, by focusing on security, you know, we've lost a lot of the um, inclusiveness of our electoral system um, and a lot of the fairness. So, um, so, so that for me is, is a bit of an issue. And one of those other words, modern. Yeah. <laughs> That I think is questionable as well. I mean, during the um, during uh, actually the Commons and the Lords stage of this bill, um, we were working with with um, parliamentarians to try and get the government to adopt automatic voter registration. It'd be such a simple move um, to to make sure that the millions of people who aren't registered to vote could just simply already be re registered to vote. Um, such a simple um, move, and and that was rejected by the government. So I do question whether they're really serious about making um, our system modern and inclusive. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I I don't think it does many of the things on that it says on on that tin, except perhaps the security element. But then I question whether it needs to be more secure in the first place. Yeah, so because we're we're talking today, it's it's local elections day today, um, and uh, I I don't know rumours at the moment that turnout might not be that high. Well, I, we won't know till the end. One of these, no point in speculating. Listeners will be hearing this next week when they'll know. Um, but this is this is the last election that we we won't have had to use voter ID for. So you said it starts as of the next. It's going to affect us from whenever the next election is. Yeah, and probably the next general election. So there's a bit of a question mark, especially at the moment, about when that will actually be. Um, there's lots of stuff that needs to happen before this can be introduced. We're pretty sure the government's intention is for the for the next general election. But of course, this is a huge change. It's a huge change to how we go about voting. Um, and electoral registration officers need to work out how it's going to be um, how it's going to be implemented. So, but really, for for most of us, yep, next time we go, we're going to have to take a form of photo ID. And you said that there's so it's about two point one million people that won't have that photo ID, and they're specifically from sort of certain groups of people, particularly sort of young people, certain minority groups. Um, so without, you know, as you said, it, it doesn't, it wasn't something that was particularly an issue before. Does this feel very much like a kind of ideological move? What's the, you know, what are the reasons for this in the, in the way that it's being done, and are there ways that they could be doing voter ID that that are more inclusive? Well, I mean, from the very start, this has been a solution looking for a problem. And now now that it's coming in, what we've been trying to say is, OK, if you're going to do this, do this in a fairer way. And so one of the amendments that actually got quite far in the House of Lords was, was an amendment that we were working on, which just expanded the number of 
the, the types of ID that you could take along. So what the government's saying is it's got to be passport, driving license and some travel passes that would be accepted. We were saying, look, you haven't made a manifesto commitment to photo ID. You've just made a manifesto commitment to ID generally. So why not allow loads of other forms of ID, which people are more likely to be carrying with them on the day. So, you know, what about, um, you know, what about library cards and, you know, debit cards and, and, and things that, you know, you might just have on you? Because as well as those people who actually don't have the photographic forms of ID, there's a whole load of people who are just going to forget their ID on the day because most of us aren't walking around with our passport in our pocket. Some of us might be waiting for our passport to return from, you know, the passport office having renewed it or something. You know, there's all sorts of really standard day-to-day -day stuff, day-to-day -day reasons why you would turn up at polling station and, and not have your driving license with you or you might not drive. Um, so, so what we suggested at the time was like, just expand this list. You know, it's just, we're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. So why make it really, really hard? Other things we suggested were sort of things that you have in, for instance, in the US where they also have photo ID and and, and no um, universal ID card, is you can um, you can cast a provisional vote. So you turn up with your without your ID, but you can still cast a, a ballot. We suggested that. We also suggested vouching. That's used in in Canada where they've also got um, photo ID. Someone can say, actually, I can vouch for this person. I can say something to say they are who they say they are. Quite quite simple, straightforward things just to prevent people from getting to that situation where they've turned up and, and they find that they can't cast their vote. Um, those, again, were rejected by the government. So we, we've found lots of different ways that this could be um, le have less of an impact on voters. But unfortunately, the government has, has stuck to their guns on this very, very strict form um, of voter ID. Yeah, because as, as you mentioned there as well, that the passport office have got severe delays. DVLA have got severe delays with driving license. There's going to be a whole load of people that haven't got theirs in the post, even if they have. And, and, and I wonder what sort of effect, you know, um, from some of your research study, what sort of effect does selling 2.1 million people they can't vote have? Like, does that cause disenfranchisement? Does that mean people are less likely to want to make an effort to vote? Or, or does it mean more people will put the effort in to kind of try and find a way to get ID? How does, how does that normally play out? I think I think we've got to be mindful about how many hoops we're asking people to jump through. You know, if you don't have ID and you've got to go to your council office potentially during working hours and apply for uh, the free ID and get it countersigned and, and go through all that. I mean, we're asking a lot of people. People have got to be pretty committed to jump through all those hoops. What worries me is that on the day you've got a lot of people. It's the first time. Let's say the first time this comes in, you've got a lot of people who who won't have voted with this new requirement. We find a lot of people coming to the polling station and getting turned away. What does that then say about the results? You know, we've got a system at the moment that functions pretty well. People are really confident. 90% of people are confident that going to vote in the polling station is safe. So what happens when people hear about people getting turned away? Does that mean that they then start to doubt election results? We don't have that situation at the moment. My deepest fear is that we get to a point where people are questioning election outcomes because they're hearing about hundreds of people not being able to cast their vote or, or more. So as well as the disenfranchisement point, there's also the kind of the, the, the electoral confidence point, you know, that people have to have confidence in the results and they have to have confidence in the fact that the election was well run, regardless of who wins. You know, this is what losers consent is about. You have to, even if you, the party you support hasn't won, you have to 
believe that it's been a fair contest. Um, that's so central to democracy. And, and that's what I think is at risk here, as, as well as many people not being able to cast their vote. I mean, along the same lines, you know, one of the other elements of the bill was that the government have removed the independence of the Electoral Commission. So it's now going to be overseen by uh, a government uh, department instead. Um, is that going to cause similar kind of mistrust in elections? What are the consequences of that move? Because obviously it was very important that the Electoral Commission was an independent body able to oversee, you know, what happened independently. Absolutely. And of all the regulators, you think the Electoral Commission that's regulating how the party that gets into power gets into power should be the most independent of all our regulators. And there's the least case for them coming under um, more government control. I mean, they are accountable to Parliament already. What this bill is doing is saying that the Secretary of State should be um, signing off on their strategy and policy. And this is really troubling because where does that where does that lead you? You know, they've got um, what what the Electoral Commission does is already set out in statute. So if the government doesn't intend to interfere with that in any way, why introduce this new requirement? And I think just as evidence of how concerned people are about this, the, the peers that were raising um amendments in the Lords on this, the, 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 the people who have really pushed on this are also Conservative peers. You know, there's, there's been a real kind of cross-party concern about what this says about our democracy. And I think we've got to think, what would, what would we as a country say if another country was doing this? We'd look at that and say, mm, that looks a little bit like creeping authoritarianism. You know, like it looks pretty dodgy. And I think certainly the debate in the Lords was saying, you know, how can we as a country talk to other democracies about improving themselves when when we're doing this ourselves. And um, so there's a lot of disquiet about it. Um, again, the government rejected those amendments um, and, it, and it was a, a bit of a, a sad day in, in the upper chamber when that happened. Lots of peers really upset about that. Um, it, it is troubling. Why do you need this power if you're not going to use it? Um, and so how that can influence how the Electoral Commission works remains to be seen. But it, but it, is, a, it is a really troubling part of this bill. Was the Electoral um, Commission, I should be careful, I say, is it not necessarily that this should have been the conclusion that it was taken in the House, but was the Electoral Commission working as effectively as it should have been? Because I, as as a voter, I will speak, you know, they're, they're, when there was sort of, uh, you know, electoral fraud that was found at the last election or things that were being investigated, the kind of menial fines that were given for it didn't feel like it might put people off doing doing it again, taking huge donations again or other things that could really sway them getting a seat. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose from, from my point of view, what was it that they did in the first place? Did you think they were they were effective as, as they were? I mean, I think there's been a general consensus for a while that given the, how the nature of campaigning has changed and given the sums of money that are in our politics that the Electric Commission needs to be more um, robust, but that's not a choice. You know, that's they use the powers they've got and they they can't levy fines like um, the information commissioners can. You know, there's not the same powers. And so what we've been saying and others are saying, you know, make the fines um, not the cost of doing business, which a lot of campaigns see them as, you know, m make them a deterrent to, to, to breaking the rules. Give the Electric Commission the teeth they need to to really clamp down on things. This feels like it's gone in the opposite direction. So they've got, you know, less independence, less power there. Um, and, and, and that's troubling because at the end of the day, they need to be able to say to fairly across all campaign groups and all parties, 
this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. And if you do something you're not supposed to do, then you're going to you're going to feel the consequences of it. And, and we're not in that. We're so far from that situation. What we didn't get in this bill at all is any um, tightening of the money into our politics. And that's a concern as well. There was no changes to things like how um, unincorporated associations, how much transparency they have to have around their funding. Lots of things which could have been tightened up in this bill, which were recommended by the um, CSPL. Um, and, and they haven't been introduced in this bill. In fact, the um, CSPL, the Committee on Stands in Public Life, produced a report on money in politics that um, that came out two days after this bill was introduced. I'm, I'm pretty sure the government would have known that that report was coming. And, you know, this bill could have come a little bit further down the line with a little bit more thought to the recommendations that were made in, in that report. But we didn't see anything in this report about tightening up the sort of like big money that's flooding into our politics. And, and that's that's definitely a concern. It's really concerning. I mean, it, it, you know, those the sort of what we discussed, the, the voter ID and electoral uh, commissions, independence being removed. Those are the two bits of the bill that I've heard about that have been, I would say, headlines. They weren't really major headlines, depressingly. Um, and, I, you know, I think they should have been. Were there other bits of the bill? Was there anything that was hopeful or useful in there? Were there other bits that we should be uh, aware of? What did finally come through in the bill, which we were pleased about, was um, imprints. And this, again, I mean, it's not going to get anyone super excited, but the government <laughs> have finally, after sort of years of talking about it, followed the Scottish government in introducing an imprint, which is, you know, you've got to say who's who's produced some campaign material. And they've introduced that imprint for online material. So finally, you know, a little bit of extra transparency in terms of online campaigning. Online campaigning has been a bit of a wild west. There's certainly a lot more we can do to, to tighten the, the regulations around that. But the imprint is a is a, is a welcome first start on that. Um, you know, voters should know when they're being bombarded with stuff online from from different campaign groups. They should know where that's coming from, who's funding it, those sorts of things. So so that that's a, that's a small step in the positive direction. I don't think it makes up for all the other stuff, but it, it's one positive thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would just mean that whenever you see an advert on on Twitter or on Facebook, you'll know exactly who's posted that advert. Which, yeah, that's a, that's a small step. That's that's definitely a, a a good thing overall. Um, yeah. And is I mean, is, are you quite worried? You know, as you're part of the electoral reform side, so you you I know you were campaigning heavily against elements of this bill. Um, are you quite are you quite concerned? I mean, it sounds obviously. I know we've discussed it already, and there's it does sound like it. Are you quite concerned about the future of our of our democracy as as a whole? Definitely, this this feels like quite a significant step back. And you mentioned at the beginning this came at, this passed last week, the same time as National Anti Borders Bill, Policing Bill, lots of things which feel like not a positive step for our democracy. Um, things that huge numbers of different organisations across civil society were questioning, asking the government to think again about. They've gone through without change in, in most cases or very minor change um, in some. And, and the picture that this all paints is, 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 is a depressing one. Um, we have yet to see how this is going to play out in an election. Um, and, 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 you know, proof will be in the pudding, as they say. But and I desperately hope that it doesn't have some of the consequences that we we expect but but last week felt like a sad day for democracy for sure um and really now it's about looking to some of the secondary legislation that's going to give us more detail on how this is going to be introduced and also you know when it comes to the first election of voter id there's huge numbers of groups who work on voter registration and voter turnout and and that will be a big job i hope 
the um, responsibility and, and the pressure for making sure voters are aware of these changes doesn't fall solely on, on voluntary groups and, and third sector organisations. The government have made a lot of noises about supporting um, the communication campaign around this. I hope that's big and I hope that's backed by a lot of money because it's a huge change um, and it can't fall, that burden can't fall purely on, on groups in the third sector, charities working with voter turnout to, to let people know about it. So uh, we'll try, try and find a positive. Uh, it, it, you know, what, what are the... I, I don't want to go through the sort of list of uh, that the, the, the bill claimed to um, adhere to, but what what are the what are the ways of making elections all those secure, fair, modern, et cetera, et cetera, and you know what what are the ways that we should be focusing on, and how can people like listeners uh, and myself how can we campaign for them? What are the things that we could do to potentially make things better in the future? Sure. Well, I think there's there's a there's a mixture, isn't there? There's the kind of low hanging lower hanging fruit like automatic voter registration that I mentioned earlier, and and lots of groups are campaigning for that. That would be such a straightforward fix for um, getting people who aren't already on the register just automatically on the register and able to vote. Um, but that. There are big structural changes that we need to see as well. You know, I've been really depressed by just seeing how much voters are losing. Voters and non-voters are are losing faith and losing trust. Um, we need to see some big changes, I think, to restore that. You you don't fix that sort of thing overnight, um, and we really need to see those kind of big structural changes to make our system fairer, to get people engaged in politics more. They don't have to be super engaged. But give them a fair choice, you know, give them a vote that counts. The, the, at the very base of it, that's that's what it's got to um, boil down to. But the positive thing is, and the positive I take away from this, is that we, we came together as a democracy defence coalition, hundreds of people and organisations joining in to say, like, this is our democracy. We're representing groups, such a diverse range of groups, um, and, and, and that we're going to stand up to this. You know, we didn't win that at the end of the day, but what it did show was that there's there's a huge sort of um, cohort of people out there who who really care enough about our democracy to kind of really fight back against this um, these moves and and I'm excited to see what comes next from that because um, you know it feels like things have got to start from the bottom up with this. Yeah, yeah, that is exciting. I do, I do think that I'm, I'm I'm quite terrified about it, all, but I do feel like once people see maybe what the effects of this are, that they'll they'll fight back against it. Will. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, I yeah. Either that, or there's going to be just a lot of people getting driving licenses. Maybe I sort of maybe maybe driving. Maybe maybe this is the era for driving instructors. Uh, <laughs> either way, a bonus, a bonus for someone. Um, well, Jess, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's lovely to have you on the podcast again. And um, you know, apart from yourself, and obviously the Electoral Reform Society, which uh, all listeners should join. Um, what other groups, people, campaigns would you recommend that listeners check out? Um, who are the people that you kind of go to for information um, on, well, sort of ways of making systems more democratic? Well, let me give a little shout out to our friends at Fair Vote, who we worked with on this bill, but who are now also campaigning on the online harms bill and, and the impact on democracy um, there. So great one to check out. Really great guys over there. And also there's a huge number of um, youth organisations who have been supporting the voter ID campaign and are doing a huge amount of work about getting younger people into politics in, in a whole myriad of ways. So there's My Life, My Say. Um, there's Let Me Not Forget Everyone. There's Hands Off Our Vote and there's the Patchwork Foundation who we've worked with um, on, on this campaign and, and they're really dynamic organisations doing a lot of really good work for getting younger people involved in politics. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thanks tons to Jess for coming back on the podcast again, despite how terrifying the state of our democracy sounds. Oh, it sounds awful, doesn't it? Awful. Um, you can find and join the Electoral Reform Society at electoral-reform.org.uk and they are on Twitter at Electoral Reform, on Facebook at Electoral Reform Society and Election Reform on Instagram. And you can find Jess on Twitter too, at Jessica J. Garland. Also, I don't mention this often enough, but the links, writers, etc. that guests always mention always, always end up in the linear notes for each episode as put together by the brilliant Cat Day, who kindly helps this podcast on her own time. Um, and then they all end up on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk under the relevant episode. So if you ever want to look up what was recommended at the end of the interview, do head there. Go on, go and have a look. Go on. And I put all the sort of transcripts for the jokes for this show, too. So, um, you know, if you ever want to hear a joke again or a description, it's all typed up full of typos over there. And of course, any suggestions for who else to chat to, chuck that my way at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com and I shall endeavour to get that sort of talking on the show. Oh, and that is it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to get over it. But don't worry, it will return. And you'd best make nice and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. Donate to the Patreon or Kofi or tell others to listen in. Or I'll tell you what, it won't stand for it and it'll be off again in a flash. It does have standards, you know. Murky Buckets to Acast, my brother last sceptic and Cat Day, and this will be back next week when Keir Starmer is revealed to be lying about Beergate. Not the breaking rules bit, but about eating curry, as he can only handle very plain and slightly wet rice. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Boris Johnson's Bus Tours. Eight-hour bus rides with running commentary about how it was him that provided the bus, rather than help you afford to be at home. Special sites include the ditch he didn't die in, all the places the Conservatives have lost seats in, and exactly where he's been sick. Boris Bus Tours, if you sit near the back, you might get warm enough to last you so you won't need a return. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.